If you have your Bibles, can you please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4? And the brother has already read it for us. We're grateful for that. And we will indeed try to look at all the verses today. From verses 2 to 23. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 23. And before I do that, let me just pray again. Lord, please help us, Father. As we've just sung, speak to us. We do want to honor you. We want to glorify you. Lord, may you be lifted high. May all glory be yours. May you increase and we and I decrease. In Jesus' name, amen. If I had to summarize Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 23, I think in one line, if I wanted to put it, it would go like this. A gospel-centered church finds joy in pursuing spiritual maturity. A gospel-centered church finds joy in pursuing spiritual maturity. Or we could even say this in another way. We could say gospel-centered Christians or gospel-centered believers, they find joy in pursuing spiritual maturity. I think you would agree with me that every living being, every organism that is born, everything that draws breath, they must show signs of growth and maturity. If it doesn't happen, then alarm bells should go off. You know, Mali and I, we, we had a first child uh, several years ago, and the Lord blessed us with that child, and it was a great, perfect experience, no problems nonetheless, not at all. Second child when we had, we were very concerned, because our second child, our son, Rohan, he kept on missing all the milestones. And he's almost a year old, he wouldn't be able to sit properly, uh, forget about crawling or any other movement. And we were very concerned, what's happening with him? Why is he not like other young kids? So what we, we, we prayed a lot, we, we asked advice from other people who had gone ahead of us in terms of parenting, we went to the doctors, but slowly God in his goodness uh, allowed him to come back to what a normal child should grow. I mean, the same way, in the same way, if a local church or Christians, believers in local church, they do not show signs of maturity and growth, that should cause us a lot of concern. We should ask questions. We should talk to people around us. We should go to people who understand this gospel, scripture, church better, and we should seek their advice. Of course, we should get on our knees and ask the Lord to show mercy on us. But I think, as we've been talking about this last few days, a church that understands the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, a church that believes in it, a church that imbibes it, a church that preaches it, that knows about it, and, and knows that Jesus for fact, for sure, it's not a myth, it's not a made-up story, it's not a fairy tale, it actually, truly happened. Jesus came about 2,000 years ago. God became man, and I cannot repeat this enough. I want us to think about this again and again. The good news is the message, is the, is the news of this God-man. It is not a mythical story. Unless and until we truly believe that, this is not going to move us to do things and move in the direction of maturity for sure. He came, he lived a perfect life, and then he died on the cross. Both he did for me and you. He lived a perfect life that you and I should have lived, but could not live in my place for me. He died the death on the cross that you and I deserved in my place that I could not have died to pay the penalty of my sins. But he rose again on the third day. 
Again, this is not a mythical story. This is the reality. This is the truth. This is what we believe with from the bottom of our heart. This happened 2,000 years ago, approximately 2,000 years ago. And then he not only he was, he rose again from the dead. He was shown to the people for 40 days. And then right before the eyes, he ascended into heaven and he's seated on the right hand of the Father from where he prays for you and me. And one day he will come back again to, let, to, to judge the living and the dead. Believing this truth, believing this truth will spur you and I to be more like Christ, to grow in spiritual maturity. Such a church that believe in this truth will find joy in the advancement of the gospel. Such a joy, will, such a church will find joy in emulating Christ and in living lives that are other-centered. Such a church will find joy in, in Christ's righteousness, not their own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness, and will long for the day of resurrection. And such a church will find joy in pursuing Christian maturity, spiritual maturity. And I pray that this would be true of Breckenhurst Baptist Church. I pray that you guys will long to grow in maturity and in being more like Christ. And by God's grace, in chapter 4, verses 2 to 23, we see these, this maturity happen in six different ways. In six ways. Not one, not two, not three, not nine ways, but six ways. So very quickly, we have very little time, so I'm going to run really fast with you guys. So please bear with me. Verse, verses 2 to 3. So there are six different ways. The first way we see in verses 2 to 3, by seeking unity among its members. How does this church grow in Christian maturity? Number one, in verses 2 to 3, by seeking unity among its members. Number two, number two, in verses 4 to 7, in verses 4 to 7, we are talking about Christian spiritual maturity. How do we pursue spiritual maturity? First, by seeking unity among our members. Then second, in verses 4 to 7, by rejoicing in the Lord always. I mean, some of the things are very obvious. These things are very simple. Christian truths are very simple, easy for us to grasp. Verses 4 to 7, number 2, by rejoicing in the Lord always. Then number three, the third way we can grow a church like this, grows in spiritual maturity, pursue spiritual maturity, is in verses 8 to 9, by embracing godliness. By embracing godliness. Number three, verses 8 to 9, by embracing godliness. And then number four, in verses 10 to 13. Number four, in verses 10 to 13. By finding contentment in God's provision. By finding contentment in God's provision. Number four, in verses 10 to 13. By finding contentment in God's provision. And then number five, in verses 14 to 20. In verses 14 to 20, number five. By giving generously and sacrificially. By giving generously and sacrificially. How do we grow in maturity? How does a church pursue joy, finds joy in pursuing spiritual maturity? Number five, verses 14, 20, by giving generously and sacrificially. And then lastly, number six, verses 21 to 23, by enjoying relationships formed by Christ's blood. By enjoying relationships formed by Christ's blood. So look with me in verses two to three again. We're talking about a church, a gospel-centered church that finds joy in pursuing spiritual maturity. And that is why in verses two to three, Paul calls out to the people at Philippi. And he's not embarrassed to take names of people publicly. Now imagine this thing. 2,000 years ago, try to imagine a letter is being read. There's a scroll there. Somebody's standing up. There's a church of people, 25, 30 people. And that person is reading that letter. And this letter has come from whom? Nance. 
From whom? Apostle Paul. Everybody is listening intently. And very likely, Judea and Syntyche are sitting over there. And they hear the name. Verse 2. I entreat Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. This is not to publicly name you and shame you, but this is a very important thing for the body of Christ. Unity in the body of Christ is of utmost importance for the advancement of the gospel. A house that is divided will not move forward with the task of proclaiming gospel to the ends of this world. Therefore, Paul is not ashamed to name these women, not because he hates them or dislikes them or to put them on a spot, but because he's truly, genuinely concerned for them. And he knows that the brothers and sisters in the church are also concerned for one another. He just makes it easy for them. He, the elephant in the room, he just makes it very obvious. He just puts it on the table. He says, hey, guys, you know there's some issue here. Let us talk about this thing. Verses 2 and 3. Please agree in the Lord. For the sake of the gospel, in order to honor our Lord Jesus Christ, would you not get along with one another? Would you put your personal preferences aside? Would you not be willing to make little simple sacrifices? Put your pride aside for the sake of the gospel. Be of the same mind. Agree in the Lord. That's the direct exhortation that Paul makes to these two believers in that church. Now notice with me in verse 3 towards the end. These believers, Paul calls them as those who have labored with me in the gospel. These are not ordinary. These are not people who are somebody whom we sometimes have people on the fringes. They are people who are in it together. And yet, in spite of that, sometimes personal preferences, personal tastes, and personal opinions can come in the way to hinder the work of the gospel. And Paul says, let's have none of that. Let's put that aside. Let's come together. And when, and then in verse 3, he goes on to talk about the true companion. It's possibly a person, or possibly he's talking to Epaphroditus. We don't know for sure. But nonetheless, he's urging the people in the congregation. He says to them, help these women. Come alongside them. Do not judge them. The, the, the task is not to say, hey, look at you women. You guys are cantankerous, cannot get along with one another. No, help them. Show them grace. Love them. Help them to get along with one another. Just for the purpose that they've been doing until now. They've labored side by side with me. They've labored in the gospel with me, along with Clement, another brother in the Lord. We know that these women truly love the Lord. Do not ignore them. Do not punish them. Do not put them aside. Their names are in the book of life. They are sisters. Let's strive to bring unity. Let's get together. Why? Because this is how a church will achieve, attain maturity. Think about our situation. It's very, um, it doesn't take much for disunity to creep in. It doesn't take much. It could be any little thing. My kind of music, my kind of seating, my kind of new design for the church. Our elders did not take this into consideration, that into consideration. Why would they do that? They don't think about this community. Oh, they are very pro that community. They only think about this race. They don't think about that race. It could be any issue. That could be, oh, why do they only talk about my children? Why do they only see my sin? It could be anything. But whatever the matter is, Paul urges these sisters and the rest of the congregation, hey guys, come along together. Let us seek unity among the members. The problem is that when a church that is divided, a church that has dissensions, a church that has factions often will lose joy. They will often have lack of happiness. What Paul wants to say to the believers there in verses 4 to 7, Hey guys, rejoice in the Lord always. Don't let these little squabbles take away your joy. Don't let these little dissensions take away the happiness that we have in the Lord. That's why he says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the, regardless of what's happening around us. And this is particularly pertinent for the leaders of the church. 
A lot of time, leaders of the church will sometimes be discouraged. When they look at the congregation, when they look at the people, and they see, it seems that people do not seem to mature. I labor, I teach, I, I invest in them, I spend time with them. I try to give everything that I have, but it seems that people do not move. And it, it, it is in those situations, whether it is leaders, elders, or it is fellow believers who look at the lives of other people, can, can tend to potentially feel embittered, saddened, discouraged. And their joy seems to dissipate, disappear, fall away. It is to them, the Lord in His Spirit, through His Word, in, in this letter, through Apostle Paul, reminds you and me, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. How do we grow towards maturity? By rejoicing in the Lord always. Regardless of situation, regardless of what's happening around us. I, my joy is not dependent on other person's response in whatever situation of their life. My joy is contingent upon what God has done in and through Christ Jesus. But the problem is, verse 5, sometimes you and I become unreasonable. Sometimes you and I lose attentiveness in situations like this. Because we are always, why is he like that? Why is she like, why don't they get it? If I was in their place, I would get it. I've, look at me, I'm all right. Why can't they be okay? And in the whole process, verse 5, we can end up being not reasonable, lacking gentleness, being irritable. Being short-tempered, being unkind, being always judgmental. But Paul says to believers in chapter 4, verse 5, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone in the church, in the fellowship. If you are reasonable, if you are behaving well, if you are showing godliness, then people around you will truly be affected by your demeanor. And why must you do that? Why must you be gentle? Why must you show reason in the way you interact with people around you, even when you're trying to help people get along with one another? Or because the Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming back soon. You cannot fix everything. I can't fix everything. I don't have the solution to all the problems in this community. The elders don't have the problem answers to all the problems. You don't have this church, this body, the, the body of Christ will always lack in things. But Jesus is coming back. One day this bride will be perfect. One day this bride will be like Christ. So I trust in that. And therefore I look forward to the day when Jesus will come back. The Lord is at hand. He will judge the living and the dead. He will renew us, but He will judge us for the way we have been interacting with the body. Instead of being irritable, instead of worrying, instead of trying to fix, manipulate things on your own in the body of Christ, what must you do? Verse 6. Oh, come to Him. Come to Him. Bring everything in prayer to Him. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. I mean, it's easy to say, do not worry, do not be anxious. But we are people who are prone to do this again and again. And yet, still, we are called not to do this. Trust the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. What are the worries that you are worried about? Now, a lot of times we like to take verses out of context and put it on fridge magnets. We love to do that. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Especially young people, when they're about to write their exams, they go to this verse again and again, and somebody's thinking about marriage, something think, somebody's thinking about buying a car. Which car should I buy? BMW or Jaguar or Mercedes? I don't know. Let me go to the Lord and ask Him for prayer in prayer. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Prime the context in the context of the church. 
It's believers. It's ministry. It's serving together. It's partnering in the gospel. It's in laboring. It's in investing in the lives of one another. When we do this, it, tends, it is a difficult task. If you haven't felt that anxiousness within you, that means you haven't invested in the lives of others. If you haven't tossed around um, in your bed, and you haven't thought about, Oh Lord, what must I do in this situation? It's because we haven't given ourselves to the cause of the gospel. But when we give ourselves to the cause of the gospel, it is inevitable that we will be faced with such a situation. But when we are faced with such a situation, we must still rejoice in the Lord. And how can we rejoice in the Lord? By bringing our petitions to Him. We bring, of course we can pray about marriage. Of course we can pray about our children's exams. Of course we can pray and ask God about decisions to make in our life. Yes, all those things are true. But, but more than that, above and beyond that, the primary thing, imagine, imagine Breckenhurst Baptist Church. Imagine, imagine if most of you go to bed tonight and you are petitioning before the Lord, and you are saying, Lord, I'm anxious about the spiritual situation state of my sister. Imagine what a church that would be tomorrow. Imagine if all of us, Lord, I'm anxious about the church in that township. They do not have a building. What must we do, Lord? Lord, what about gospel? Gospel out there in, in, in some faraway place. Father, what must we do? You're anxious about it. You bring those things before the Lord. You bring things about unity in the church. You think, bring things about maturity in the church. You bring things about faithfulness, love for the Lord, love for the gospel before the Lord. And you entrust us in His hands. You trust that the Lord is in control. He's sovereign. He knows what He's doing with His church. They are His people. And He loves them. When you bring everything before him in prayers, verse 7. Verse 7. This is not magic. This doesn't say, if you bring everything to the Lord, everything will be okay, all right. Do not worry. You go to bed, wake up in the morning, voila, everything is fine. No, the problems are gone. That's not what Paul says in verse 7. Verse 7, Paul says that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. It is you and I that need more help than others that we think need help. It is my heart that needs to be watched out for. Because I am the first one to be embittered. I am the first one to feel sorry for myself because I am the first one to get angry with people around me because I am the first one who dislike it when people disrespect me. Oh, I need to bring all those feelings, emotions before the Lord. The situation might not change terribly. The person that I've prayed for, prayed about, might not change terribly. Things might still be the same, but the peace of God God, who is the creator of this universe, the one holy God, the one almighty God, he promises to us in verse 7 that we don't understand how he functions. He will give us a sense of rest and we will be able to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Oh Lord, I see now, actually it was me. I see, Lord, the, the bitterness was in me. I see, Lord, I was arrogant. I see, Lord, it was my pride. Forgive me, Lord. That peace of God will guard my heart and my mind in Jesus Christ. So a church that wants to pursue maturity will rejoice in the Lord always. But in verses 8 to 9, they will also embrace godliness. So you come to the Lord in prayer. And bring your petitions to him. You thank the Lord. Lord, you've already answered my prayers. And the way he answers our prayers is by guarding our hearts and guarding our minds. He primarily changes us. 
He changes me. He changes my perspective. He changes my way of looking at things. He gives me a new desire to love people. He gives me a new desire to serve people. He gives me a new desire to be small, to be little, to be the last one, not to be the first one, not to lord over people, but to love people, to live my life for my brothers, to risk my life for the sake of the gospel. And I rejoice in that. And that is why Paul goes on to say in verses 8 to 9, it's more about you. What are you embracing? What are you latching on to? What are you holding on to? What are you trying to grab on to? Verse 8, Therefore, finally, my brothers... This is your responsibility. The Lord will guard your heart. He will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. He will fill you with peace of God that that surpasses all understanding. The world does not know that kind of peace. But my brothers and sisters, you must do what is right. You have a responsibility. So God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And God will do his work, but you must do your work. I must respond in a different way. Verse 8 and 9, it's absolutely beautiful. Again, context is the king. Context is the key. If you look at the context, then it makes us very clear what the text is saying. If you yank verses out of context, you can make it say whatever you want to say. So what is true? What is favorable? Honorable? What is just? What is pure? What is lovely? What is commendable? What is excellent? What is worthy of praise? A life which is given to the cause of the gospel. The gospel, the very gospel that we've heard. The very person of Jesus Christ. He is true. He is honorable. He is just, he is pure, he is lovely, he is commendable, he is excellent, he is worthy of praise, Jesus and his gospel. So what do we do then? Uh, We do not worry about what's happening around us. The world will be in upheavals. Things will be up and down. Things are never the same. Things sometimes are okay, sometimes are bad. Troubles will come. This is part of life. This is the game that we are in. Pain and suffering and difficulty and all sorts of things. But what must you and I do? Or think about these things. Think about these things. Verse 8 towards the end. Not what the world wants us to think about. No, sometimes people will accuse Christians of brainwashing their people. And I said, no, we are not brainwashing. Actually, the world brainwashes us. Christians are helping us to set our brains right. The scripture is setting us in the right direction. The world just wants us to live for here and now. And I cannot overemphasize this thing. The world just wants us to think about what can I get now? How can I have the maximum pleasure here? How can I have maximum satisfaction today? How can I we I live the best life here now, right now? Whatever possible situation, well, how, how can I navigate through all these things so that I might have a comfortable, safe, secure, problems-free, pain-free, happy, settled life till I die? That's what the world tells us. And that's what we think about always. That's what we think about always. Think about this. Ask yourself this question. What what consumes you when you wake up in the morning? What consumes you? What consumes you during the meal times? What consumes you when you go to bed? What dreams do you dream? Think about these things, Paul says to us. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word. And Paul wants to say to us, God speaks to us through his word. In verse 9, he says to us, What you have learnt and received and heard and seen. Learnt, received, heard and seen. Learnt, received, heard and seen in me. 
Paul is not embarrassed to talk about himself because he truly is living a gospel-centered life. He is sacrificing his life. He's given it up, up all. What you've heard, what you've received, what you've seen, what you've learned, practice these things. Practice these things. I mean, we, we, as I said earlier, also sometimes that we all suffer from spiritual amnesia. We seem to hear and we forget. Or we seem to learn to have some kind of compartments in our brain that is for Christianese language, Christianese thing, where all these things shift into that corner and then we go back to living as we were living. Oh yeah, great, great. Thank you for the challenging message. Thank you for that sermon. That was very convicting. But what do we do in response to what we have just heard? Practice these things. Do it. Do it. Trust in the Lord. Think about these things. Meditate on these things. Be obsessed with these things. Be consumed by these things. Meditate on these things. Don't think about the things that the world thinks about. That's not our priority. We do not belong here. This is temporary. We are going. We are going to our home. Therefore, we think about those things. We are consumed by those things. So remember that old hymn that said, Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, verbal assenting and saying, oh yes, I trust in Jesus. And then obeying is where the rubber hits the road. So I pray for our church this morning. It is hard, it is difficult. It is very difficult. You and I cannot do it by our own strength. We cannot pull ourselves up on the basis of a bootstrap. We can't say, yes, I will do, and yes, I can. That'd be empty. You know, in India, where, where, um, on the highways, uh, when we have big trucks that go, go um, pass by at a, at, a rapid, at a big speed, and there'll be garbage and plastic bags lying strewn around. I, I bet it, it happens here also. And when the trucks go by, those garbage bags, those plastic bags, those paper, those, some dry leaves, they start floating. And they float with the truck for about like 20, 30 meters. And it looks like that they're floating, they can fly. But what has happened is they've just experienced a gush of wind because of the truck that has passed by. And what happens when the truck is gone, after a few seconds, those things just settle down where they were. A lot of time conferences do that to us. We feel kind of a, there's, a, there's a big gush of wind. And we all are excited. We've got, got to do something about it. Got to do something about it. But we don't want to be like those garbage bags, empty bags, those papers, those dry leaves that just fly for a little while and they settle back because they do not have the wind, the power, the engine within them. You and I have the Holy Spirit living within us. We have a new heart. And I pray and I trust and, I, I, uh, uh, and I'm trusting that most of you here are regenerated, born again believers. If that is the case, then when you read a passage like this, where you hear Paul saying, hey, think about these things and you obey, you do not come up with a justification. We do not, well, you do not understand the culture here, Mr. Preacher. You'll go back to your country. We'll go back to our own ways of doing things. Thank you very much. It was nice to have you here. But you say, no, it is God's word. It is the Holy Spirit who has inspired these words. We believe in the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture. We believe in the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. We believe these are the words of God. And we believe what was said to the people back 2,000 years ago is still valid for people here in South Africa or India or people at Philippi. And therefore we say, of course, Lord, by your help, with the power of the Holy Spirit, because you have spoken to us, because your word has spoken, because we sang the song, Lord, speak to us, O Lord. And he has spoken through his word. 
that we think about those things and we practice those things. This is how we grow in maturity. This is how we, we take a f- one step, move one step further in maturity. It's not magic. It's not going to happen overnight. It will be a struggle, but we will keep working hard and keep pressing forward. Not only that, Paul goes on to say in verses 10 to 13 that we grow in Christian maturity by finding contentment in God's provision. Paul talks about his own life. He gives an example of himself. He starts saying in verse 10, hey, I rejoice in the Lord. You guys have cared for me. You guys have provided for me. The people at Philippi have shown him practical, tangible love. They have cared for him. Uh, Paul says in verse 10 in the third line, he says, you, you were indeed concerned for me until now, but you weren't able to help me. But now you have managed to send Epaphroditus with all the stuff that you've sent. Paul is not like those fundraisers. He's not like those preachers who keep dropping hints to get more money. Paul is not a greedy preacher. Paul is a genuine, committed gospel worker. He's truly living for the Lord. When he says these things, he's not trying to push some buttons. He's trying to not get money out of them. He's not trying to manipulate them. He is not a salesman who's just trying to sell his product, trying to get more people behind him. That's why he says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I need anything. He's not, he's not saying, I am not saying that I don't need anything because he's a proud man. No, no that's not what, why he's saying this. But he's saying this so that they know where his heart is. So that they know what he thinks about. Even when he doesn't have things, he doesn't think about things. He will think about things of God. He will be concerned about the purposes of God. That's why he says in verse 11, towards the end, I've learned in whatever situation to be content. After all, contentment is great, gives us great joy. You know, a lot of us, um, when we think about the provisions of God, we often find ourselves at the spectrum, at the end of that spectrum, where we are never content. But the sign of maturity, if we want to grow in spiritual maturity, is that we will be content with God's provision. Whatever God provides us, a truly mature Christian is not one who is constantly complaining and grumbling and always longing for more and more and more. But as as one who is grateful, who is grateful for what God has given to us. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 6, that there is great gain in godliness with contentment. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of this world. This is not just some pity saying. This is not just meant to make us feel good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've not brought anything into this world and we won't take anything into this world. But that's okay. We still have some time here. So let's gather as much as we can. That's what Paul is saying. Paul says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If we have food and clothing then we will be content. But what about Matthew chapter 6, verse 33? It says, but seek the kingdom of God first. I have been seeking the kingdom of God, and I have been seeking His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Well, my dear friends, you haven't read your Bible correctly. Please look with me in Matthew chapter 6, first verses 31 onwards. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? What shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. What? What shall we drink, what shall we eat, what shall we wear? And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Eat, drink, wear. Then, verse 33, 
but seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. What are all these things? All these things? Eat, drink, and wear. I bet most of you here this morning, I doubt there's anyone who does not have these things. Eat, drink, and wear. In most circumstances, under God's provision, God very kindly provides all believers with things to eat, clothes to wear, and water to drink. In most, under most circumstances. There are exceptions, but generally under most circumstances. That's what Paul is saying in verses 10 to 13. He says, hey, I want you to find contentment in God's provision because I am content, verse 11, towards the end. Whatever the situation it is. And that's why in verse 12, I'm okay when I'm brought low, when I don't have much, and I know how to abound. When some people read, I, I know how to abound. And when they read in verse 12 towards the end, abundance, they think that he must mean a lot of wealth. I doubt Paul um, uh, uh, played with a lot of wealth. I think he played with a little bit of wealth when he spent time with Lydia or the, Macedon, uh, the Philippi, jailer from uh, Philippi. But his own personal life primarily was a life of sacrifice. A life of hardships. The Christian world, the Christian church around the world has become unaware of the understanding, the language of sacrifice, giving up, abdicating, living in less and poverty and penury for the sake of the gospel. The minute we talk about this, everybody says, oh, that's legalism, that's legalism. That's, that's adding to the law. That's, that's, that's saying more than what the scripture is. What does Paul say here? In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. His abundance is what? He has two rotis, two bread, two loaf of bread. He has butter naan instead of simple bread. That's what his abundance is. He's not talking about opulence. He's not talking about extravagant living. He's talking about day-to-day expenses. He's content in what God gives Spiritual maturity is shown in contentment in material things that we have. This is the bottom one of the things that, that, that very evidently shows itself in the lives of Christians in India, in America, in South Africa, in England. You go to the townships, go to slums, go to suburbs, go to, go to, go to, go to the cities of India, mega cities. It doesn't matter where you go. It, it, it is one of the clearest markers of spiritual maturity. Where is a heart set on? What, what do we treasure the most? Oh, the mind that is set on flesh. The mind that is set on spiritual things. That is why Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things through whom who strengthens me. I cannot live like this. I can't live a life of sacrifice. It's hard. It's difficult to sacrifice. It's difficult to give up. It's difficult to live when it is less. We will we'll, we'll crib. We'll complain. We cannot handle difficulties. We will run away when difficulties, when penury, when, when poverty will come knocking at a door. But I can do all things because God strengthens me. Christian maturity is shown in contentment in God's provision of more or less, of little or abundance. It's not running after abundance. It is being content. We've brought nothing into this world. We'll take nothing with us. This is what the, the thing that must be back of our head all the time. That is why, number five, verses 14 to 20, Christians will show maturity when they will give generously and sacrificially. They must give. They must give. So while Paul, as a gospel worker, is willing to sacrifice and live a simple life, he exhorts on to the people at at Philippi and encourages them and thanks them for the generous and sacrificial giving. I'm running out of time, but if you have, if you know 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you know that the people at Macedonia, people at Philippi, were people of, of limited means. They were poor people, and they were in the extreme poverty, they were generous. They were not generous when the government was doing okay. They were not generous when the employment rates were high. 
They were not generous when they knew that their retirement funds will be safe. They were generous when everything was uncertain. In the face of uncertainty. Because they were truly mature believers. Mature Christians will live a life of giving. Generous giving. Sacrificial giving. Giving to the point where you have to pay a price. Verse 49, Paul tells, you guys were kind to share my trouble. You were partners with me in verse 15. And from the beginning of the gospel, we were partners, partnership with me, giving and receiving. This partnership is not just in words. It's not just in prayers. It's an actual exchange of material uh, things, of finances, of currency, of funds. They were funding his mission work. They got behind him. They didn't just sing, we want to see the gospel go out. They sang that we want to see the gospel go out. And then they reached out to their pockets. They pulled out the checkbooks and they wrote checks. And they said, Lord, here's another check that shows I'm not enslaved to my money. Lord, here's this money that you gave me. Lord, you enabled me to create this wealth. This wealth of mine is yours because you helped me to achieve this. I have this wealth so that I can use this wealth for your glory, for your name, for the sake of the gospel, to the ends of this world, to the corners of Africa, to far places, to places in townships and suburban areas. Why? Because Lord, you are helping to mature in Christ. This is the work of the Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can give away and I will not complain. I can give away and I will rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. I will have a sense of satisfaction, a sense of joy when I will see things that the Lord has blessed with me are now being used for His glory, for His namesake, for the building of His kingdom, for the expansion of His kingdom, for the building of His name. When Paul says these things, when I say these things, I'm not saying this so that you might write me a check. This is not, Paul was not trying to manipulate them. Because some of us might very quickly think, why do these preachers always talk about giving, giving, giving? Ah, their salaries are dependent on them. Now Paul says in verse 70, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. When you give, as though there's a ledger in heaven where there's an entry that is made next to your name, ah, for the sake of the gospel, this person gave this. Now, it's not works-based religion, we know that. But our religion is not without works, we also know that. What good is a faith, what good is a religion where we have no works? When we show no generosity, we sacrifice not. We just give to kill, to, to, to kill a guilt, to suppress a sunk, assuage a guilt. No, no, we give generously. Christians are people who have massive hearts. If you are a cardiologist and you, you put a Christian on, a, on an operation table, you open his chest, you would see a big heart. That heart is enlarged because that Christian is a maturing Christian. He gives generously things that the Lord gives him. That's why he's full of gratitude to the people at, at Philippi. And he says in verses 18 onwards, This has been a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. My dear brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you, when you give, when you write that check, when you make the transfer to the sake of the gospel, for the work of missions, for the sake of lost people being saved, to come to be brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, for the gospel to be proclaimed, for the books to be published, for pastors to be equipped, for pastors to be trained, to be brought here in weekenders, to be taught by your elders. When you do that, you are making a fragrant offering. The Lord loves it. He's pleased with that. This is no rhetoric. This is not semantics. I'm not playing with words. This is what the word of the Lord says. Either you believe it or you do not. This is a sacrifice acceptable. When you have put that money away for your holiday and you say, no, I will give this away for the sake of the gospel. That sacrifice, the Lord finds is acceptable. And it is pleasing to God. Now, by doing that, you're not becoming more righteous. 
By doing that, you're not gaining God somewhere, some more, more, more pleasure for you. But God is pleased as He sees His children who live a life of sacrifice. It pleases Him. Why would we not want to please our God, our Father? And when you do this, God will supply your needs. God has supplied your needs. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, we've just read. Hasn't God supplied your needs? Is there anyone who will say, well, I don't know, my needs? Well, the question is, chapter 4, verse 19, has God not supplied all your needs? According to his riches, he has abundantly given us. He has given us plenty, more than what we need, more than what we deserve. So true Christians who are maturing, a church that is maturing would be, would be marked by generous and sacrificial giving. And finally, in verses 21 to 23, and some people sighed and said, yes, thank you, finally, by enjoying relationships formed by Christ's blood, in verses 21 to 23. So as Paul wraps up the letter, as he comes to a conclusion, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. They are our holy ones. They have been sanctified. They are justified. They are brothers in Christ. It doesn't matter what background they are from. It doesn't matter which which community they belong to, which race they belong to. They are our brothers in Christ. And therefore, our brothers who are with me here, they greet you. And how did they become brothers? And how do they greet these people, these saints? It's because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's because of the gospel. The gospel has brought them together in one family. They are one in this endeavor together. Verse 22 is amazing. And all the saints greet you. They greet you communally, as a community, but also individually. Especially those of Caesar's household. Caesar's household, the household that was made up of people who were persecuting believers, who were persecutors, who were, who were opposing the gospel, who, who had nothing to do with the blood of Jesus Christ, who had nothing to do with the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now they are saved. Once they worship Caesar, once they said Caesar is Lord, but now they say Jesus is Lord. And that's why, because they say Jesus is Lord, because they've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, they're part of our family. Doesn't matter whether they were Romans, it doesn't matter whether you were Jewish background, it doesn't matter if you were some other ethnic background, we are part of one family. We are one in Jesus Christ. That is why, verse 23, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let us pray.